So this is talk number six, Teacher's Retreat at Spring Brook, um, Stephen Batchelor. So we're going to go back again now to the principle conditioned arising and uh, tease that out in some greater detail. And much of this will focus upon understanding how the Buddha presented consciousness. That's the key, I think. So we saw with uh, this idea of conditioned arising, which is what the Buddha declares to be what he has woken up to, this then gets teased out in a number of ways. What, in fact, this means in a practical sense. Again, to emphasize that the idea of conditioned arising is giving us a framework for doing something, not a framework for believing that this is how reality works, even though that may be true. The first, um, in terms of simplicity, the first um, uh, statement is when the Buddha says, when this is, that arises. In other words, more or less identifying conditioned arising with uh, the principle of causality. But again, understanding causality so that you know what the causes of well-being, etc., are, and you act upon them. And you begin to understand what the causes that give rise to conflict and trouble are, and you act differently. That's what's important. Do something. The next level is in the presentation of the Four Noble Truths. Here we have the conditioned arising uh, fleshed out for the first time in a concrete way that gives us, I think, a template for living our lives. And this we don't need to go into anymore because we've spent much time on that. Embracing dukkha gives rise to the letting go of craving, gives rise to the stopping of craving, gives rise to the creation of a path. That's probably the, more, the most fundamental template. But we also find in the canon um, uh, three other um, articulations of this uh, principle of conditioned arising. Or three basic ones. The first one, which I'm not going to go into in much detail. Um, let's go on. The first one is uh, found in the Sutta Nipata. Now, by now we know that the Sutta Nipata is uh, the earliest of the um, Buddhist texts within the Pali Canon. So it's got a certain antiquity to it. Now, if you look on page 20 of your handout, um, towards the bottom of the page you get a number 862, verse 862, which runs through to verse... 874 within the Sutta Nipata. I'm not going to go through this. Um, I'm going to suggest that you read it. In fact, I should have. I meant to suggest that last night. But um, this is a very good example of the different uh, kind of voice that you find in these in, in the Sutta Nipata, this very early text, from the kind of voice you get in much of the rest of the canon particularly the Majjhima Nikaya, the Diga Nikaya, the Sanyuta Nikaya. These more detailed, rather um, um, analytical, sometimes rather repetitive texts. It's a different voice. And if you read the Sutta Nipata, you'll get a feel for that. It's much simpler, it's much less worked out, it's much less doctrinaire. Now, the Buddha does not, in this text, call what he's doing the links of dependent origination. But if you read through it, you'll see that you have in there the outline of the uh, theory. Now what's interesting about it is where it begins. It begins, and I'll read this verse 862, whence arise quarrels, disputes, lamentations and grief, together with avarice, pride and arrogance, together with slander too, where do these arise? 
This is the starting point for the Buddha's analysis of uh, the causes of those things. Now what is striking is that this, he's starting not with the question of birth, sickness, aging and death. In the classic presentations of the Twelve Links, it starts by saying, um, uh, you know, this is the, what is it that causes us to be born and die? And then it goes back through the Twelve Links to ignorance. Here, we don't have such a grand metaphysical ambition to know what the cause of birth and death is, but instead we have an utterly um, this-worldly attempt to understand what is the cause of conflict. Quarrels, disputes, lamentation and grief, avarice, pride, arrogance, slander. In other words, the Buddha is describing what would be true for any person, whether they believed in Buddhism or not, this is, the, the, this is a good description of conflict on earth. People don't agree with each other, they get into trouble with each other, we get depressed with each other, and we get caught up in our desires and our prides and our arrogance. In other words, the Buddha sees um, this as the starting point, not the question of multiple lifetimes. So the, and, and then he tracks that back. Um, again, I summarize at the end of the passage. He tracks that back to um, uh, greed, things which are dear, which come out of desire, anger, lying and doubt, which are based upon pleasant and unpleasant uh, which arise out of contact, which arise out of name and form. So those of you who are familiar with the Twelve Links will see many of the key terms, although in different language. I mean, interestingly, for example, uh, he doesn't use the word tanha, craving. He uses the word desire, which is, he uses the word chanda, which in most Buddhist, um, uh, in other Pali discourses, is usually seen as a positive thing, dharma chanda, the longing for the dharma aspiring to the Dhamma. He hasn't yet even differentiated between general aspiration and the negative craving, which is also a form of aspiration, to wanting something. I'm not going to say anything more about that. Read it uh, if you wish. It's quite complicated. It gets, it's a little, little confusing. It's possibly slightly corrupt, the text. We don't know. So you have what might be a sort of prototype of the 12 links or the, the link theory in the Suttanapata. Then the next level of complexity is the 10 links. Now at the time of the 10 links, um, we've moved more towards a metaphysical theory as to what it is that causes birth and death. What's missing is, are the first two links, ignorance and karmic formations. They're not mentioned. It starts with name and form and consciousness. So in other words, again, it's starting with a situation that we can recognize as our condition here and now. And then he analyzes how, uh, on the basis of that condition, that primary condition, we get caught up in craving. Now this is, um, again, I think you can see how this is working with the Four Noble Truths. The, the, in this account, starting with consciousness and name and form, uh, going then into contact, feeling, and then craving, what we have is an analysis, as it were, of how our condition, dukkha, gives rise to craving. So what he's doing in that model is teasing out um, the, uh, the causal linkages between the first truth and the second truth. Although, when I was taught this by my Tibetan teachers, the twelve links was always understood as, uh, as the causal links between craving and dukkha. I've turned it round. And then, finally, you get the 12-link model. Now, the 12-link model um, is the orthodox model. 
And you'll find uh, that throughout the canon, a, a stock passage. And I get the impression sometimes that where the word, if there were, might originally have just been the phrase dependent origination, the, um, the editors or the memorizers of the text would just replace that by plugging in, you know, cut, paste, the 12 links. Seriously, you get, it's so repetitive and so uh, rote that that's what it looks like. It, when you see dependent origination, you replace it with the 12 links. That's the impression I get. Now, um, <clears throat> what was I going to say? Okay, let's just go through, the, just list the 12 links so we, we we're aware of them. It's um, avija, pachaya, karma, uh, uh, sankara. Independence upon ignorance arises actions or karmic actions. Independence upon karmic actions arises consciousness. Independence upon consciousness arises name and form. Independence on name and form arises the six senses. Independence upon the six senses arises contact. Independence upon contact arises feeling. Independence upon feeling arises craving. Independence upon craving arises clinging. Independence upon clinging arises becoming. Independence upon becoming arises birth. Independence upon birth arises aging and death. That should be 12. So what you can see is you have there a, a theory, a causal theory, that explains why it is we get born and die. And that is rooted in ignorance. And so by tracking back to ignorance, you can then understand that by getting rid of ignorance, you would get rid of the whole problem. You basically wouldn't then get born again. And therefore you wouldn't die and you wouldn't suffer. Now that to me is metaphysics. Uh, especially it gets, it, the, the really tricky bit is understanding how craving gives rise to clinging. That's easy enough. Clinging, a kind of intensified form of craving. But how does clinging give rise to becoming? Or in fact the word is bhava. Existence. Being. And how does being give rise to birth? Here I think you get into the sort of territory of how many angels there are on a pin of a needle. This gets extremely difficult to understand what on earth that means. So I'm going to leave that aside and focus really on the elements of this sequence that are practically applicable. And here I think the 10-link version is helpful. Because it starts by giving a very acute analysis of our condition and then seeing how that prompts craving. So let's go then to um, page 23 under the section which is titled uh, Consciousness. Now I'll come back to the, the section on consciousness, the, the first citation concerning Sati the fisherman's son uh, in a minute. But I'd like to start with um, uh, the next passage which starts, Then monks it occurred to me, you got that? Yeah. Then monks it occurred to me, when what exists does consciousness come to be? By what is consciousness conditioned? Then monks, through careful attention, and I imagine that's Yoniso Manasikara, through careful attention there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is name and form, consciousness comes to be. Consciousness has name and form as its condition. Okay, now those of you who are familiar with the 12 links will realize that that's an inversion of the, of the basic doctrine. Basically, the traditional doctrine is consciousness gives rise to name and form. The Buddha then says, what gives rise to consciousness? Name and form. And then he says something, I think, which is even more interesting. He says, then, monks, it occurred to me, this consciousness turns back. It does, I think this is a strange translation. I would translate it, when this consciousness turns back, 
it does not go further back than name and form. When this consciousness turns back, it does not go back further than name and form. So let's stop there and just analyze this passage here. Now, as, um, as I've been saying all along, it's sometimes very difficult to understand these texts unless you know the context in which they're taught. The, 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 um, the, the expression name and form, Nama Rupa, uh, is not an original Buddhist idea. It's borrowed from the Upanishads. It's a, it's a, it's a pre-Buddhist idea. And if you look on the next page, I've actually found the passages in the Brihadyaranaka Upanishad, which is one of the most important Upanishads, and it pre-exists the Buddha, and this is what the Upanishad said. It's describing actually the, the, um, the emergence of the universe from God. It says, all this was then undifferentiated. It was just pure being, Brahman, God. It got differentiated by name and form. So that one could say, he is so and so and has such and such a form. Therefore, at present, also all beings are differentiated by name and form. So that one can say, he is so-and-so, and he has such and such, such, such a form. Now there's two things that are important here. First of all, that name and form has, to, has something to do with identity. You are recognisable through two things, basically. Your name, if somebody calls out Jamba, then in some neurons in that person's brain, you go, oh, that's me, Right? <laughs> And if I call out Lizzie, then the same little neurological reaction will happen in Lizzie's brain. And she'll go, oh, it's me. And likewise, when you see, you, when you walk past a reflective surface, say a mirror, and you see you, that thing in the mirror, you say, oh, that's me. And when I'm shave, shaving in the morning, when I do shave in the morning, I'm looking at me. I, I recognize myself through my form. So that's one aspect which I think we need to bear in mind and which is not explicit in the Buddhist presentation of it. But that's how in the culture name and form would have been understood. It's about identity. So that's, that's hidden. The other crucial thing to recognize here is that in the Brahmanic tradition name and form is, is also is a description of how the world gets differentiated. How out of oneness there arises multiplicity. That's the basic idea. Nama Rupa, Rupa, Rupa is another way of saying differentiation, plurality, complexity, multiplicity. The very, the very opposite of oneness, which is Brahman, pure undifferentiated being. So again, that's another aspect of name and form that is not explicit in the Buddhist texts, but it would have been understood by the listeners of this text. So name and form has to do with our identity and it has to do with the, mul the, the multiple complex world. Now when we go back to the Buddha's statement uh, um, that we've just cited, when this consciousness turns back, it does not go further back than name and form. In other words, at least this is how I would understand it, consciousness, uh, there is nothing prior to name and form. There is, there is no primal unity or pure being. There is just the multiple, phenomenal, complex world of specific identities and specific things and people and so on. <coughs> Consciousness, therefore, arises out of that complexity called name and form. It does not have any prior origin in some undifferentiated divine reality. And again, we also have to understand that in the, uh, some of the Upanishads, vijnana, or consciousness, is identified as a quality of God. Now, we find this a lot in modern-day Hinduism, in Advaita Vedanta, that, um, that when you, um, uh, when, when, when you uh, realize the true nature of reality, you realize that it is, it, it is pure mind. Consciousness. You must have come across this. Sat, chit, anand. Truth, consciousness, bliss. It's chit, chitta. 
Chitta vijnana are synonymous. Sometimes the word vijnana is used, if I remember correctly. That God, uh, although God is unknowable, of course, this is the big problem in any theology, nonetheless, God can't help having certain attributes of this world. And one of them, in Christian tradition, it becomes uh, God is a person. In Indian tradition, God is consciousness, pure consciousness. Now, the Buddha seems quite clearly here to be denying that. To be saying, no, there's not some primal consciousness out of which the multiple world evolves. But consciousness emerges out of the complexity of the world. So, to get a clearer... Are you with me? Yes. Yes. So, to get a clearer understanding of that, we have to jump to um, uh, another passage uh, where the Buddha actually explains what he means by name and form. Now, this is on, on page 24. Um, and what monks is name and form? Is Nama Rupa. Feeling, perception, intention, contact, attention. This is called Nama. I've written those up there. And the four great elements and the forms derived from the four great elements, this is called form or matter. We don't have a word in English that captures the complexity of the word Rupa. Thus, name and form together are called Nama Rupa. Now, in English, we translators always interject a conjunction, and. But in, in the original, it's just one word, Nama Rupa, name form. And I think that would be a much better translation, instead of name and. And this, you can see the problem for the translator has here. Thus, this name and form are together called name and form. The only difference is you put two hyphens in there. Name and form together are called name form, Nama Rupa. So, to understand what the Buddha means by Nama Rupa, and again, this is a very good example of how the Buddha is taking a term from the Brahmanic tradition, Nama Rupa, and giving it a totally new spin. He's taking Nama to refer to five, um, uh, what are subsequently called in the Abhidharma, mental factors. Contact, feeling, perception, intention, and attention. That's what I want to look at now. I think this is a, is, I think this is a, is, is a brilliant analysis of consciousness. What um, the Buddha's doing is he's showing us, when he says that consciousness arises out of name and form, and doesn't go further back than that, there's no consciousness prior to that, he's saying consciousness is not, in any sense, a single thing. This, again, is a critique of Brahmanic thought. There's no such thing as pure consciousness. Consciousness is only possible because it is composite. It is complex. If there were no contact, feeling, perception, intention, and attention, there'd be no consciousness. Consciousness, therefore, and this is how Geshe Rabtan explained it, consciousness is like the hand, and, and a nama... Contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention are like the fingers and the skin and the bones and the nerves and the blood. Consciousness does not exist as a separate thing. This, I think, is an, a major breakthrough in Indian thought. And when you recognize that consciousness is also rising out, out of rupa, the, the physical world, there's also a recognition that consciousness is always what in modern philosophy would be called intentional or referential. Consciousness is always consciousness of something. There's no such thing as consciousness without an object. This would agree with, with say, particularly Husserl and others in the phenomenological tradition. Consciousness is always intentional. The Buddha got this 2,000 years before these guys. I, I think this is, uh, to me, one of the most uh, insightful analyses of human experience that... Uh, we have, and it's remarkably modern in many ways, yet this is probably going, being said in about 400 BC. Okay, let's now try to tease all this apart. Uh, we, let's start with Rupa rather than Nama. Rupa, as the, as the text says, is uh, the four great elements, 
and what is derived from the four great elements, and that clearly is the phenomenal, physical, material world. Now, we have maybe pause a little bit. We would say that, for example, sound is not composed out of elements. We still have an elemental theory, earth, water, fire, and air. But the way the Buddha actually... Um, understands this is more in terms of what are the objects of our sensory awareness. In other words, rupa is what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. What we hear, what we sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and tactile sensations. Tactile sensations. That's rupa. So, and though, I think nowadays we probably wouldn't think ink of those in terms of at- necessarily being atomic sort of elemental things. But let's leave that aside. That doesn't really matter. The point is that um, uh, the world, pres- the world is, is present to us. Experience is present to us in terms of, of visible, audible, olfactory, gustatory, and tactile things, we would say. Now, these things impact the organism through the senses. And so the physical senses are also included here under rupa. And that would be the eye organ, the ear organ, the nose organ, the mouth, the tongue organ, the body organ, as they call it. Those five um, physical organs that mediate the world of sensory reality to us. So how does that mediation occur? In the first instance, it occurs through contact. So I think um, rather than seeing Nama Rupa as two things, which we inevitably do once we interject this and, which again splits, something which is not really splittable, there's no and in the Pali, no and in the Sanskrit, uh, no and in the Tibetan, Mingzuk. So let's get back to getting rid of the and. Nama Rupa is an attempt to describe phenomenologically what is actually happening right now without assuming there is a Nama and a Rupa. It's just Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa, one could say, is phenomenological experience. And we 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 can differentiate the elements of that, but we must be very careful not to make those distinctions kind of uh, uh, rigid into things, separate, discrete things. They're not separate, discrete things. They're all, it's all part of this seamless experience that we're having right now. It's seamless. It's unbroken. There are no lines drawn that segregate sound from, let's say, hearing of sound. Again, it's a useful exercise that we sometimes do on retreats. We know that there's a sound of the magpie. We also will say that I hear the sound of the magpie. Perfectly correct. But when you sit in meditation, for example, try asking yourself the question, where does the sound of the magpie stop and my hearing of it begin? You can't do it. It is, and this is going back to Western phenomenology, it's um, uh, me hyphen hearing hyphen the hyphen magpie hyphen. They try to break down this sense that there are separate things. We're so invested, probably for survival reasons and lots of other reasons, to break the world down into discrete objects. The whole theory of emptiness is basically a critique of thingness that things exist as separate entities. This is all prefigured here. So, or an easier example is me sitting on the chair, my bottom on the cushion. Right now, just close your eyes, try and draw a line between the two. Can't do it. Well, I can't do it anyway, maybe you can. It's just a blur. It's bottom hyphen sitting hyphen on hyphen cushion. It's a weird blur. It's a very strange experience to, to notice that. And this, I think, in a way, indicates how this rather overly vaunted term, non-duality, 
is actually right. It's a description of what's going on in our immediate sensory experience right now if we start paying attention to it. We are part, we are seamlessly woven into the fabric of this world. Now just a slight sort of um, diversion. This is what we need to fully know. This is part of dukkha. This is the five aggregates, as it were. The Buddha's injunction is to, is to know that, to fully know how you are seamlessly interwoven into the fabric of the world. And meditation is very good at that, if we apply ourselves to meditate in such a way, to notice that. It's very easy to notice it if you just pay attention to it. So that's so we can we can conceptually distinguish sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches from our experience of them. We can also conceptually differentiate noses and eyes and ears and tongues and bodies. Experientially, though, that's not how it actually appears. So we have to remember that we're applying a conceptual frame which is incapable of actually representing what's happening. Um, in the way it happens. It's always, it, 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 it's, a, it's an approximation. It's a representation. Very careful of that. Not to think that it corresponds. So the first, uh, in describing this Nama Rupa, we can then quite reasonably uh, recognize that there are points of contact. This is Sparsa. Now interestingly, the word Sparsa is exactly the same word as what is used for tactile sensation. So contact, the word that's being used, is the same as the word touch. That uh, our organism, is, we would say in more colloquial English, is constantly touching the world, is in touch with the world. That's what the word sparsa means, touch. And it's been borrowed to explain this more intermediary experience of contact. Now, of course, we all know what that means. If you're walking down the road and your toe bangs into a boulder, you have, you're in no doubt that you've come into touch with something. There's a contact. And you also know that the contact will trigger a feeling, in this case, pain. So there we get contact feeling. Now, um, and, well, actually, I mean, as, as you can probably notice, these, this is another way of talking about the five skandhas, okay? Five skandhas are rupa, which we've just explained, uh, vedana, feeling, perception, sanya, which we've also got under these nama factors. Then we have what is called sankhara, volitional formations, that corresponds to intention, and then attention, manasikara, which we've also been talking about. These things are considered to be um, the primary functions of the organism in response to its environment. Prior to any kind of action being taken, any moral action being taken. Now, I first came across these, and I'm sure Jamba recognizes them. These in, I studied, studied these um, in Tibetan Buddhism at great length. Um, but then they were called the Kundrona the five omnipresent mental factors in the Abhidharmic system of Asanga, the, the Abhidharma Samuchaya, Mahayana Abhidharma. I never realized, and the text, Asanga and Geshe Rabdham, didn't recognize that these five omnipresent mental factors were spoken of by the Buddha as the Nama factors. Now, another point I think we should point out is that when Nama Rupa is traditionally described in the 12 link model, consciousness gives rise to Nama Rupa, Nama Rupa is almost invariably interpreted as mind and body. Right? That's not what it means. Nowhere in the Pali Canon will you find under Nama Vijnana or Chitta, mind. It only refers to these five functions. So it's quite incorrect. Even Tsongkhapa who is no fool. In his Lamrim Chenmul, when he describes the 12 links, Nama Rupa becomes mind and body. If you look at the 12 link picture on the wheel of life, you get two men in a boat. Mind and body. That's not what it means. 
It's really not what it means. It refers only to these five functions. Now, the first one, contact, we're probably familiar enough with, I don't have to go into that anymore. The second one, feeling, likewise, we've spoken enough about that, we don't need to go into that, that anymore. Except perhaps to say that if we try to look at this holistically, uh, if we try to look at this model holistically, and again, Nama Rupa is a holistic idea. It's not name and form, two things. It's a holistic picture. If we look at it holistically, we have to recognize that, that contact is not just talking about something subjective. You know, you know, I experienced this contact. But also, it's descriptive, as it were, of the kind of, um, rea- kind of experience we're in. We're in an experience in which we are always in touch with the world. The world is something that is present to us as something that can be touched, contacted, dealt with, um, uh, uh, felt in that sense, sensed. The world we live in is a contactable world. And the world we live in is a world in which everything is always emotionally coloured. Feeling is not just, again, we often think of it rather too crudely as pleasant, unpleasant, neither one nor the other. That's the classic definition. But what it's pointing to is that experience is always coloured emotionally. It always has a feeling tone to it. This is why I choose the word feeling tone. It's the, 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 there is an emotional colouring to all experience. And I think the great insight of a Sangha in calling these kundro or omni-active functions is that in this model, this is a later Abhidharmic model, these five things are always present. You cannot conceive of an experience in which one of those five is not present. If one of those five were not present, there would not be consciousness. So in other words, consciousness, well, we'll come to consciousness later, but these functions are always there. This is, again, a very useful meditation to perform. To actually attend in meditation to noticing the contact, noticing the feeling, noticing the perception. So now we get to perception. Perception is more tricky, much more tricky. The best explanation I've heard of this comes from the writings of Jnana Viratera, who wrote Clearing the Path. There's a chapter on him in my recent book. And he, again, he was very much informed by phenomenology, phenomenological thinking. For him, perception doesn't just mean that we perceive this as opposed to that. And again, if you go over the page, I found recently, actually, a very good, um, a very early... Um, uh, we have Sariputta, and this is a text in the Pali Can, in the, the margin of 43, who says, it perceives, it perceives. That is why perception is, that, 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 that is why we say perception. And what does it perceive? It perceives blue, it perceives yellow, it perceives red, it perceives white. That, that's the example that's given. So perception Um, is the capacity of consciousness to differentiate and to recognize. Again, the Abhidharma often defines it as as, as differentiation. So, in other words, um, when the world impacts us through the senses, not only do we find ourselves in touch with the world, not only do we find ourselves feeling a certain way about it, we also find it appearing to us as intelligible, that it makes sense. Now this is again tricky to, to, um, this is very tricky to get, but I think it's a very important point. Arguably, much of Buddhist meditation is about um, reorganizing perception, reorganizing how the world makes sense to us. We also have to, again, just to flag this, perception is not the same as consciousness. Let's give an example. Um, I've actually found some of the best examples of this, not in Buddhist writings, but elsewhere, in some 
particularly, actually, in the writings of Oliver Sacks. Um, there's a book he wrote called An Anthropologist on Mars, which you may have read. And in that book, he gives a number of accounts of people who have been born blind and then, as adults, uh, medical technology has developed that they can have their sight restored. Now, again, common sense would imagine that when the bandages are lifted off the eyes and the person opens their eyes and the, and the operation has been a success, suddenly the person will see their wife, their children, the bouquet of flowers, the nurses, the smiling doctor, the stethoscope. No way. <laughs> total and utter confusion. Total and utter confusion. It's, um, it's just a bewildering array of utterly unfamiliar stuff. Colours and shapes, that's it. Now, th this is, I think, very... Th this, I think, tells us a lot about perception. Or what, what, what is meant here by perception. At least as I understand is that the world, the, what I'm looking at now, I know that there's a door over there, goes into the kitchen, and I know, pretty, I know exactly how long a time it'll take me to get there, I know how far away it is. Um, it all makes per, 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 in a perfect sen sense. To the person who hasn't, uh, the person who's been blind from birth and then sees that, doesn't have a clue what's going on. In other words, what we are experiencing right now is something we have learned. It's not the nature of what's out there. And this is actually rather disturbing when you start to think through the implications of this. Um, of course, neurologically, we know that what we're seeing is not something out there at all. It's actually a representation of what's out there in our brains. <laughs> you know, we think we're looking out there. We're actually, if anything, we're looking in here. There's a picture going on that's being constructed in our, this highly complex organ called the brain uh, that is giving us reliable information to get around in this world that we can never really know in any unmediated way. It works, but it's illusory to think that what we're seeing or hearing is somehow um, independently like that. It's not. can't be. And there's no way we can check. There's no way I can step outside of my brain and take a look. Can't do it. Now this is, this is, this is unsettling. At some, at some level I find this unsettling. Because it contradicts a very basic assumptions we have about my relation, say, to that tree. So perception, as I would understand it, is uh, this primary capacity of the organism to represent its world in a way in which we can function within it. That's how I would understand perception. Can you say that once more? No, I've forgotten what I said. Primary capacity to represent the world. The function of perception... Uh, I said it very, very, very clearly, didn't I? Uh, the, the function of perception is to enable us... No, the percep perception enables us to function... Uh, correctly or appropriately. Yeah, it's a representation. Listen first to the time <laughs> first time, the first thought, best thought. Is we, we, <laughs> in other words, the world, uh, the world always appears to us um, as as making sense. I mean, a very good example, actually, is um, I'm going to write something on the board. You see, we, I mean, a good example is the written language. Now, everybody except one, two people in the room haven't got a clue what that means, right? That's just white, that's just black squiggles on white ground. Right? Now, to Jumba and me, we know that that says num Namsi. It's Tibetan for vinyana, consciousness. I'm, I'm right, right? Confirm, please. So, I'm shaking Now, to those of us who haven't learned Tibetan, that's just squiggle, right? Um, those of you who have learned Tibetan, it's not squiggle, it's as meaningful as this, self-reliance, my word. 
Now, again, this is a very good example of how, by learning, we come to see the world differently. It's not as though Jumper and I have to go, oh, wait a minute, that's up, vertical line, horizontal line. We don't have to think at all. The word jumps off the board. It, the, the meaning is already there. Um, it doesn't have to be, uh, you don't have to think about it. We read a book, high school. We've we programmed ourselves to, to know what those words mean. You don't have to think about it at all. Now, the same is true with everything else. The, the world, we read the world. Uh, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, everything that we're experiencing now is recognized and, and it is rendered meaningful a door, a clock, a lamp, the urn, etc. Just in the same way as we, uh, some, some, some of us will see that word namsi. That, 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 that is perception. So, this is omnipresent, as the Tibetan, as the Tibetan or the Asanga would say, because we cannot conceive of consciousness without the world somehow making sense. The world feels a certain way, and it makes sense in a certain way. Of course, sometimes we get it wrong. We can misperceive. And if you think about it, what the Buddha is saying is that a lot of our dukkha and, uh, is, is, is caused by misperception. We, and again, we get, to get this in the text. We perceive what is impermanent to be permanent. We perceive what is a dukkha to be sukha, happiness. We perceive what is not self to be self. So the three marks of being are actually talking about um, uh, learning to re-perceive to perceive correctly what we currently misperceive. In other words, the, the, and the world appears to us that way. The, the three marks of being, um, psychologically, are talking, uh, the, the, you know, the importance of paying attention to the three marks of being, impermanence, dukkha, and so on, is because the world, our experience, does not represent itself to us in that way. We see the world as a place for our enjoyment, for getting happy. Sometimes that's the case, but chances are in the end it won't, we'll die. We see the world as providing uh, things that are sufficiently permanent for us to be able to hold on to and rely upon. Ain't true. And we see the world essentially as a domain of me and mine. And again, if we look more carefully, we'll find that isn't the case. So Vipassana meditation... Uh, awareness meditation, mindfulness meditation, is about learning to get our perceptions right. It's a perceptual exercise. It's, it's learning to pay attention to those features of the world that we habitually ignore or forget or suppress. And so when you meditate, and this is why it's so important to keep on doing this, keep on remembering it. This is where sati comes come, come, Sati, not as mindfulness so much, but as recollection, is constantly recalling that this is the case. Of course, we know it intellectually, that nothing is permanent, but our perceptual system, which we would now probably see as rooted in our brain and our biology and our survival needs, our perceptual system misrepresents the world in those crucial um, respects. So the meditation practice, the whole practice, is about aligning our, is learning to perceive the world aright. And it's not easy, because the whole organism is programmed to do it the other way. Probably for very good reasons. Survival reasons. And then we get, okay, so at this point we've now talked about basically the first three skandhas, rupa, vedana, and sanya. But the word sanya, by the way, just, I think is helpful. San, sanya means uh, um, sam means together and nya means to know. It's together knowing. It's what organizes or brings things together. It's what makes sense of things. So this, uh, so contact, feeling and perception are unavoidable. 
You don't choose how you perceive the world. You don't choose how you feel about it. You don't choose what impacts you, necessarily. You walk into a room and bang, it's all there. It, you're, you're, you're in touch with it, it feels a certain way, and it makes sense in a certain way. That, that, that really is the primary data, datum, of experience. So the first three skandhas describe the datum, the given, in experience. Nothing you can do about it. Then, and this is what's important, the Sankara Kanda, the, the Skanda or the aggregate of, of volitional formation, so-called, really boils down to intention. That's why they're called volitional formations. It's not what the word literally means. But it's a, it's a good in translation because it highlights that it's at this point that intention kicks in. So intention, um, chetana, is how the Buddha defines karma. Action, karma. Uh, I've actually, so if you look under the section on action, you actually have the original source for that. Uh, karma monks is chetana. Action is intention. Okay, now intention uh, in the Asanga definition is, if I can remember this, yula yawar jebe senjo. The mental factor that moves the mind to the object. In other words, it's with chetana that you move into your world, you respond or you react to your world. And this, of course, is now where craving and so on begin to happen. But cravings at a much higher level of psychological complexity than these, than these it's, a, it's a different order of complexity. Now, so in other words, the world presents itself to us in a certain way, and we then respond, we then react, either habitually, automatically, if we, a snake appears, we will recoil without, before we even think, we will act. So intention does not mean, in this sense, conscious, volitional, willful intention. It's whatever we do that moves us, that somehow initiates some kind of response or action. Now what this means also, if we look at it more holistically, is that the world is always an arena for action. The world is, in, 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 is, 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 is unavoidably a place where we act. By actions, this means what we think, how we speak, how we move our bodies. This is how we relate. This is how we begin involving ourselves, engaging with the world. And a lot of these engagements and involvements are, are just driven by habit by conditioning, by what we've always done in the past. And again, this is a point in which, um, uh, in terms of the meditation practice we're doing, this is the point at which we be can begin to start making a difference. And instead of just following the habitual reactive patterns, noticing them rather than following them. This is the key point, really, where the, 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 this, this cyclic link pattern can be interrupted and broken. So intention is what we do. Whether we think, speak, act, we do something. And you can see it in meditation. When you're sitting dead still, trying to get the mind to be dead still, we're still doing something. We're choosing now to be still. It's an action. It's not a non-action. It's an action. It's, it's, it's a, a conscious choice to respond to the world by being still. It's a conscious choice to respond to the world by being mindful. These are actions. <coughs> and finally, <clears throat> we get attention. Now, attention is coming back to a discussion we had, where we've had um, uh, earlier. This is this famous Manasikara. The Yoniso Manasikara is skillful attention, but attention is, the, is a far more primary and, according to Asanga, necessary part of any given moment of experience. What it refers to is the fact that um, uh, the mind um, not only acts, but it also attends. That our primary behavior is one in which we're moving from one object to the other. 
Even if we're so-called distracted, what we're doing is attending to, let's say, some story going in our mind, or we find ourselves constantly attending to something. Or we could choose to attend to everything. It's still an attention. It's, um, uh, it's, it's, the, it's this inherent capacity we have to um, uh, uh, locate our minds on a particular object. Whether we're flipping around like a monkey from one object to the next, or whether we are consciously deciding to focus on our breath, or on our thoughts, we set ourselves a task. We need both to be able to act, to move, and to stop and attend. Now, you might even, I mean, it would be interesting to see whether you know, animal psychologists would recognize these functions within, let's say, birds and kangaroos. I suspect they probably would, but who knows? I don't want to be anthropomorphic unnecessarily. But I think if you pay attention to your experience, um, you'll find that at any given moment, you can recognize that these five functions are going on. And as long as these, and as long as, and whenever these five functions are going on in relation to the world that is uh, presenting itself to us, then we can talk about being conscious. So when the Buddha says, um, when there is name and form, consciousness comes to be. Consciousness has name and form as its condition. So consciousness is the whole of which all of those things are the parts, if we look at it as a gestalt. Consciousness does not exist separately from any of these things. Consciousness, when we say we know or we're aware in the widest sense, it means that we are in touch in contact with something, we feel about it in a certain way, it makes sense to us, um, we are acting upon it and we are attending to something. And that set of functions is what constitutes what we say, I am conscious of. I'm conscious of this, I'm conscious of that. Now consciousness is an extremely strange thing. Again, we use the word quite... Um, blithely, but um, it's actually quite difficult to become, as it were, to notice that you're conscious, to be aware that you're conscious. It's, I find it's the, it's the weirdest thing around, being conscious. But it's so, it's so much, it's so essential to what we are, it's very difficult to notice how strange it is. Again, some of Oliver Sacks' work like the man who mistook his wife for a hat, which is again a classic example of, the, of perception somehow getting screwed up, is, um, is very good at this because he can't, what Sachs does really well, um, he's a neurologist, lives in New York, is he's very interested in how, in people's experiences that arise out of neurological aphasia or other uh, dysfunctions. And in a sense, you by reading Sachs, and I would really encourage it if you haven't read him, uh, you, you really recognize, you really get to see how, <clears throat> you, you get to see what happens when, the, when that, this, this structure begins to break down. Some very, very strange things uh, occur, which are almost inconceivable for us. And that, I found, is a very useful mirror that enables us to reflect on the fact that those things, those things are not happening for us. Now, consciousness is not something that we develop. This is another point that um, con consciousness is, is again, a, it's a given. Um, it's not uh, some. It's not. Um, uh, I mean, if you go on to the next page, twenty-five in the middle, as this text with Sariputta again. Um, it's a very interesting passage. It says, "Intelligence and consciousness, which is panya and consciousness, these states are conjoined, not disjoined. It's impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them." Now, this is what we spent a couple of discussions doing, basically. 
trying to describe the differences between them. For what one intelligently understands, that one knows, and what one knows, that one intelligently understands. But the next passage is, 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 is interesting. He says the difference, friend, between intelligence and consciousness, these states that are conjoined, not disjoined, is this. Intelligence is to be cultivated, consciousness is to be fully known. Now here we go right back to this. Consciousness is part of dukkha, part of the state we are in. And that's something just to be aware of, to know. Intelligence is part of the path, and that is something to be cultivated. This is a direct reference to this model. Okay? So the five khanda, um, or the aggregates, or how I, in a sense, prefer to see it, is um, uh, nama rupa vijnana. Nama rupa and vijnana together. That is part of the Buddha's um, uh, injunction. Uh, that is part of what the Buddha wants you to fully know. We need to really get much more deeply attuned to this particular sense of reality. Now, in the way I've described it, again, this is very close, I think, to um, an experience of the world as something profoundly interdependent and interconnected. And this point is made even more vivid, but also makes it slightly more problematic. Because if you read, the, if you read this whole passage, then, monks, it occurred to me, this consciousness, when this consciousness turns back, it does not go further back than name and form. It is to this extent that one may be born and age, die, pass away and reborn. In other words, you know, this, our conscious experience of, what going, of what's going on, that is the process of birth, sickness, aging, death. It's not something indifferent to us. It's not an object of, of scientific, objective study. We're actually considering here, this is the condition that will keep unfolding until we drop dead. This is our life, in other words. So that is when there is, there is consciousness with name and form at its condition, and then he says, and name and form with consciousness as its condition. And there's a passage below that. He says, friend, I will make up a simile for you. Just as two sheaves of reeds might stand leaning against each other, so too, with name form as condition, Consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, name form comes to be. This is one of the few passages in the Pali Canon where there is an explicit um, recognition of interdependence. Interdependence. Now, what does that mean to say, having said now, you know, quite clearly that consciousness arises out of name and form, the Buddha is also saying that you can't have name and form without consciousness. If you, if, you didn't have that conscious, if you didn't have the capacity to know, to be aware, you'd have no access or no inkling of name and form. I think this is actually quite tricky. It's quite difficult to understand this. I think this is well worth meditating. I think it's, it, it's what in some uh, modern philosophy they talk of as the co-creation of the world that we co-create this world. It's not just the world is creating us, but because we are organized as conscious beings, that is what gives rise to our experience of the world. If we didn't have that consciousness, we wouldn't have the experience of form, contact, feeling, perception, all that stuff. So this is a description of... Uh, this, this is a phenomenological analysis of experience. It's, it's a first-person analysis. And I would assume that this is an example of the Buddha's genius. To have seen this, there's nothing really as a, as a precursor to it. He somehow, through his own reflections and meditations, came up with this view. With this, with this I, I think, a very intricate, beautiful and holistic and ecological understanding of the human organism intimately in, uh, uh, interconnected with its environment and its world. So consciousness, and just to conclude, um, maybe I won't conclude with this, we might start with that. Do I read also the passage under the heading consciousness where Sati the fisherman's son says, as I understand the Dharma taught by the Buddha, 
It is this same consciousness, this one consciousness, that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. And what is that consciousness, Sati? It's that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there as a result of good and bad karma. Misguided man. <laughs> Misguided man. To who have you ever known me to teach the Dharma like that? Now this is shocking because a lot of Buddhism is taught like that. It's this consciousness that goes on from life to life. And guided by karma. No, Sati, you've got it wrong. Misguided man, in many discourses have I not stated consciousness to arise upon conditions, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. Monks, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on eyes and forms, it's reckoned as eye consciousness, etc., etc. Just as fire is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it burns, when fire depends on logs, it's reckoned as a log fire. On grass, a grass fire, etc. Now this is a very explicit recognition that consciousness is, uh, arises out of the interactions of an organism and its environment. It's, um, and it's very difficult if uh, on the basis of that passage and on the basis of the Nama Rupa consciousness interdependence, to then talk of consciousness breaking free from the body at death and going on somewhere else. I mean, this seems to be quite clearly rejected. It's very difficult to see how all those passages in the canon, where the Buddha speaks of, if you do this action, you could get reborn as this, um, can be made sense of in terms of this kind of analysis. Very tricky, and I think possibly this is why the Buddha says, you know, our mind and body is saying or different, don't go there. We can't analyze this experience into uh, uh, two things. A bit that survives death and a bit that dies. Can't do it. The whole system is utterly interdependent. So that's one of, this to me is, this whole, this whole section here, um, I think undermines any understanding of what of, of how you can get reborn in some way. I don't see how there's any wormhole out of this interconnected world in which a bit of me, some subtle bit of consciousness or something, can go somewhere else. Anyway, I've said enough today. We will stop there and we can no doubt have plenty of discussion about this this afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.